Vintage Tactic, Gataxian Probe, and a special guest interview on episode 43 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 43 of So Many Insane Plays. We have a special dual topic show today. We'll be analyzing a vintage tactic, Gataxian Probe, and we have a very special interview with longtime vintage player and tournament organizer Ray Robillard. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements this week, we want to touch on some upcoming tournaments. In the Midwest, we have a TCG bronze event in Lafayette, Indiana on April 11. There's a Mr. Nice Guy Games in Pittsburgh, PA on March 29. And the Next Team Serious Open, which is in Norwalk, Ohio again on May 9th. I think it's their second one at that shop, which is a nice new location. Steve, how about the West Coast? Yeah, we're having uh, a vintage tournament at Eudaimonia in Berkeley on May 3rd. So if you're in the Bay Area, if you're in San Jose, you know any one of the nine Bay Area counties, um, I'm sure you can find a ride and you come out. Our last tournament, we had about, I think, 25 players, and it was a great tournament, which I ended up winning. <laughs> nice. And we want to draw our audience's attention to the next NYSE Open, number three, coming up in June, June 26th through 28th. Steve and I will be there. A lot of players will be there. It's a great, awesomely run event, and we're looking forward to it. So hope that a lot of our audience can make it out for that one. For our tactics discussion today, we're here to talk about Gataxian Probe, a very mysterious and interesting card in the vintage scene these days. And we'd like to kick off our discussion with a quote via Twitter from one Chris Pecula, who said, After I die, the first thing I'm going to ask God is, how many Gataxian Probes should I have been playing? (laughs) I think Chris gets really to the heart of a lot of the complex issues with Gataxian Probe that we're here to talk about today, and that is... The card is somewhat innocuous, surprisingly deep, and prone to, I think, misevaluation unless you really dig into it. Would you agree, Steve? Yeah, I think what I think what um, I think what you said is true, but I think what Chris's quote gets to the point as it gets sort of reveals is how difficult it is to, to be certain about the value of Gataxian probe. In my in my uh, pr- Delver primer on that point, I say Gataxian probe may be one of the most challenging and endlessly intriguing cards to analyze. In some respects, it may actually be incapable of complete analysis or full comprehension of its effects, value, and utility. And I think that's what you know. That's what he's uh, he's saying is that it's just it's just so difficult to to pin down exactly how good that card is. And we're going to run through the various costs and benefits of the card, pros and cons, and talk about its effect on decks and deck construction. 
as well as its current uses in the format. Definitely. This is going to be a vintage tactic that in discussion that we, we're not going to be, you know, so presumptuous as to say that our analysis is the final analysis, but we hope to dig as deep as we can. And arm you, the audience, with as many different angles to examine Probe as you can have, really, to draw your own conclusions. So let's start at the what I call the outer layer of the onion in my in my Delver primer. The most obvious function of probe is to thin your library while giving you information. And even at that most superficial or official outer layer, you can already see the complexity because two of the things that it does are bound together in a way that you can never entirely separate. The, the value of the information and the value of thinning. So why don't we just begin by discussing those in, in turn? I don't know which one you'd like to take up first. Well, let's talk about thinning because I think it's a little bit more of a straightforward mathematical analysis than yeah. the information concept is. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think there's anything really straightforward about Cataxian probe, but I, I understand <laughs> what, you're, what you're saying. Well, what what's interesting is that um, you know let's just let's start with cards that have thinned in the past. Um, you know, in in thinning, I just want to say at the outset is distinct. Actually, let's let's not address this point immediately, but I just want to draw a distinction between card selection and card thinning. Fair. And I'm, let's bracket that and come back to that later. But thinning, you know, there are cards like Urza's Bobble that well over a decade, you know, two decades ago now that introduced the concept of thinning. And the the card that I think first really brought it into stark focus, the value itself of thinning was Street Wraith, mm-hmm. which was the very first card that unlike Urza's Bobble or Mishra's Bobble or any of those those cards actually it wasn't a spell you had to cast. There was no delay. It was just you use the effect and you immediately draw another card for the cost of two life. Um, and the Taxing Probe was the is is of course in many ways much better than Street Wraith, despite the fact that it you actually have to cast it. You can't just you know do activate Street Wraith's ability from your hand. Um, and but but the the basic baseline fundamental concept behind thinning is that in any form of constructed magic, the assumption is that you'd rather have a smaller library than a larger one. And I think most people accept that. Would you say that that's accurate, Kevin, without explaining why? Is that accurate? I would say in the baseline, that is accurate. Right. And the the reasoning for that is that there is a further assumption that there is inherent inequality in the value or utility, or if you want to use the term, although it's a contested and conflicted one, power among magic cards. The first assumption flows from the second. And the idea is that having a smaller deck means you'll have faster and more frequent more frequent access to the best cards along that hierarchy of power or utility or value. Meaning that, you know, if you have the option of constructing a 40-card deck or a 60-card deck in vintage, almost every single player would choose a 40-card deck. Similarly, if you have the option of a 56 or a 60-card deck with no at no cost, you would choose the 56-card deck. And the reason is because given the inherent inequality of card value, you want to get closer to the better cards, either meaning you're more likely to draw the better best cards in your opening hand or draw them during the course of the game. And the cards that sort of most commonly represent this inequality of power are cards like Black Lotus or Ancestral Recall or Force of Will or Tinker. So the idea is having a 56-card deck gets you closer to those cards and more likely to draw them in the opening hand. So that's the sort of baseline fundamental value of thinning, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, 
Now, the question is, if that's totally true, then why doesn't everyone run Kataxi and Probe or Street Ray? You know, you could, one way of framing it is, you know, is a thought experiment. Suppose Street Wraith, suppose Street Wraith costs no life. Would everyone run uh, four of them automatically, Kevin? I think in in many, many cases, yes. Everyone, not 100%, but I think a very high percentage. And in Gitaxian Probe, if it didn't cost two life, would everyone run just four? I think it would be it'd be comparable, but there are there are legitimately cons to Gitaxian Probe as opposed to Street Wraith at zero life because Street Wraith is much harder. Yeah, Street Wraith is much harder to interact with than casting a free probe, an absolutely free probe. Okay, well, I'm going to take a controversial position and <laughs> say that I disagree on that one. Okay, I disagree with that that conclusion, and I think by the end of this discussion, my reasoning will be clear on why I don't think people would run Street Wraith. And I'll I'll share an anecdote about playing with Street Wraith towards the end as well. Okay, uh, but but that's that's the sort of reasoning behind thinning. I I do want to also just flag the fact that I think that the assumption about the inherent inequality of card values and utilities in the format. If there's any format in which that's true, it's likely to be vintage. But I also think there are decks for which it's much, much less true. Sure. And, and you have much greater power homogeneity that actually undermines that that logic as well. Delver being the, the poster child for that. Absolutely. We'll, we'll yeah. delve into that later. But uh-huh. did you do you have any other thoughts on thinning? Just that thinning is even at a quote-unquote free cost, which there's no such thing as free in Magic, but... Thinning is hotly debated throughout Magic's history. I think the first cards... Okay, so the Baubles, the original Bauble and then the later ones, brought this into the limelight in Magic's early days. But I think that the cards that really gave it the most debate were the Fetchlands. There's been lots of debate over the years in terms of how many Fetchlands do you play in a monocolored deck, for example. Mm. And the value of fetching. And also the value of the fetch, the activity of a single fetch at certain points in a game. Yeah, that's and so, true. And it's, but it's, it's def- I don't want to throw another whole wrench, monkey wrench into the discussion, but it's also complicated by the value of shuffling itself. Yeah, well, that's true. And shuffling, as we've discussed in other tactical discussions, has become increasingly valuable. And fetch lands in relation to brainstorm, preordained ponder, jace, all these things. Yeah. So the, let's ignore the shuffling aspect of. But I'm simply pointing out that that there there is no firm consensus on the value of thinning in Magic, broadly speaking. Yeah. There is so yeah. much contextual uh, information that is needed in order to draw the conclusion. And plus, there is no absolutely free thinning mechanic. The best cost we've got, I think, is one or two life, and they come in the form of different cards that have different meanings and interactions. Like, you can't put four street rights in an oath deck. So there are myriad reasons. But I would simply point out that even statistically, even for the pure mathematics of it, it's still not fully widely understood or fully a given yeah. in, in the entirety of magic. And, and that's part of what makes this analysis of Gitaxian probe so complicated. Is that there's no clear uh, consensus about the value of thinning itself. Right. There is a general but consensus I would point that thinning out, is a good thing, but we just don't know its precise value. I, I would point out that as compared to fetch lands where the, the opportunity cost of the land is pretty low, pretty low especially right. in modern color decks we're going to talk a lot about opportunity cost for an inclusion of probe in the deck later yeah. but also there are just so many more interactions with probe because it's a spell because of the nature of the spell and because of all the ancillary yeah. effects and vintage yeah. that there are just so many more factors than just the thinning yeah so let's... but I, I, so i think it's really interesting to revisit your question about 
how much would absolutely free street rates get played at the end? I look forward to talking about that once we've cashed out all the other points. Yeah, it's a very important thought experiment. Yeah. Uh, but let's let's toggle to the informational aspect of the Taxian probe for a minute. Um, it's, it's equally interesting and I think equally contested, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which makes, you know, underscores just why the Taxian probe is such a enigmatic card to try and analyze. So one of the class of decks for which Gitaxian Probe has shown up a lot recently is combo decks like Reed Duke's TPS deck and Randy Bueller, Danny Batterman, Chris Pakula's Belcher decks, mm-hmm. um, which really use pro- the informational aspect of Probe to suss out and exploit vulnerabilities in an opponent's hand. Um, and because the avenues that most decks have to interact with those kind of combo decks are so laser focused yeah. that the information is amplified in value if having the right play right then and there is going to win you the game. Because vintage decks, there are very few good, broad answers to combo. There's Force of Will, which is ubiquitous. There, for workshops, are a couple of broad-reaching effects like Spheres and Chalices. Once you get past those things, though, many, many, many of the answers become very narrowly focused. Your, Your mental missteps, your misdirections, your mind break traps your thought seizes, your um, abrupt decays, ancient grudge, those kind of things have useful effects and they're there for a reason, but they're also, they can all be played around to some degree. And so for these decks like Belcher, Doomsday and other tendril style decks too, the notion that you can you can suss out what your opponent's narrowly targeted things are and play around yes. them or not play into them right. is one of the reasons why there's so much more appearance of probe and combo decks these days. Right. So you could you could set up a number of ex- examples, hypotheticals that illustrate this notion. So you you play Gitaxian probe and you see you see your opponent has let's just say a spell pierce, a mental misstep, and a misdirection. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Instead of playing that Belcher or that Necropotence right now, you're going to wait until you get two more mana, you know, so you can resolve it through the Spell Pierce, knowing that, or you select the card. Like, say you have, you were debating between playing an, an, an Ancestral Recall or... Expedition Map. Expedition Map, right. Yeah. Knowing that they have that mental misstep will deeply inform which one you're going to play first. Or you could even imagine, like, you probe your opponent and you see that they have, let's say, a Pyroblast, a, you know, um, a Flusterstorm, and, uh, yeah, let's say it's that, and you were debating whether to play Tinker or Charbelcher. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, you've got your answer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So the information there, that's why the most common, well, I don't know about most common, but that's why a common appearance of Probe these days is in combo decks. Yeah, or, or just to give one more example from the TPS perspective, you see that your opponent has Red Elemental Blast, and you were debating between Time Twister and Wheel of Fortune. Debate is over. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. But then there's another class of decks that are playing Probe these days, and it's where, as you alluded to earlier, the information is not quite as important as the other synergies with the effects of having Probe in your deck. Yeah, let me and, just let me just build on that specific point. So we talked about thinning, but there's a third function, which is actually the, the, the notion, not of thinning, and not necessarily of card selection, but of card celerity, which is an, another benefit altogether. Mm-hmm. That becomes particularly important when you're talking about 
using it with delve cards. Also with Pyromancer and and Monastery Mentor. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, you could we that's that's a fourth that's a fourth thing altogether, which is triggering those cards. But I was thinking specifically of the fact that your your by card celerity, I mean sort of like cycling through cards quit more quickly, so that you can build to play your your delve draw spells as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we saw we saw probes showing up not uniformly, but quite a bit in a lot of the treasure cruise decks that were until very recently ubiquitous. And we should mention just a few other uses, which are related to celerity, as you put it, but more along the lines of specific interactions. Delver of Secrets definitely wants you to have more spells in your deck, as everyone knows. And so if you can swap out a land and maybe something else that some other non-spell and put some probes in their places, your Delvers are going to flip just that more often. And also free spells in a way that Street Wraith never does. Free spells have synergy with Storm, of course. So on the point you just made about the value of, of, of um, Probe, or any cantrip for that matter, in high spell density decks, I think it's a very important point. It's, an, it's a point I make in my Delver Primer, which is that when you think about thinning or you think about using Probe for spell celerity, either one of those functions is likely to be maximized. Not always, it's not always true, but generally true. Index that have higher density, higher spell count. So, you know, just to make two comparisons, TPS type decks tend to have roughly 30 mana sources. In comparison, Delver type decks, Gush decks, tend to have closer to 20 and even even less, even fewer mana sources. So, you know, that's a gigantic ratio. You know, mm-hmm. it's the difference between a deck that has roughly 33%, 30, 33% of its deck is mana sources compared to 50%, which means that most of the time in the Delver type deck, when you play Gitaxian Probe, two out of three times you're going to be replacing it with a spell. Where that could, it could be even less than 50% of the time you play a probe, you're going to be replacing it with a spell in a combo deck. Mm-hmm. And and so I think what that shows is is really actually underscores, again, the complexity of this card. Because when deciding as a designer to include probe, you have to consider what the value and costs are. And it's clear that when you're ultimately deciding to include it in a deck like TPS, the informational aspect is very important. And that's part of what you're paying for with probe. Mm-hmm. Because you're not going to be replacing it with a spell in most cases. In comparison, or at least, you know, it might be a mana spell. Whereas, you know, in the, the Delver decks, you're very likely to be drawing into a business. It's, it's, it's the celerity. You already made that point, but I'm just underscoring it. That it's important to understand that the very same card is, doing, is serving a very, very different function from archetype to archetype. That's a good point. Very good point. The combo decks wouldn't be playing probe if it, did, if it didn't have its peak aspect, but Delver yes. might be. Peak meaning seeing the opponent's hand. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But Delver yeah. might exactly. Another use for probe is certainly in Doomsday Piles. Um, you know, when Laboratory Manic was printed, I published a set review saying that basically building the Doomsday Pile would become... And, and none of the other vintage reviewers identified Maniac, and there were like three or four writers at the time. And then I immediately top-aided the Waterbury, the first person to do so with Maniac Doomsday, um, and published the primer. But what's interesting is that I immediately identified Probe as a card that I would put as a one-of in my Doomsday deck, both because it's useful for, obviously, can-tripping after you play Doomsday, but it's also a good card within the Doomsday pile and solves a number of Doomsday solutions. But what I actually discovered after a lot of practice and testing is that I couldn't come up with a single Doomsday pile that actually needed Probe. That is, there was no problem that couldn't be solved by a different spell configuration, so I ended up cutting the Probe. It turns out... Mike Salamasi did find one, and I think it has to do with basically if your graveyard is under attack, like say there's a 
four mod script in play, then you may actually, there's a situation where you do need probe. Um, but I'm not very big on probe, even in that deck. And so you'll notice that none of my Doomsday decks, maybe it most have one Utaxian probe. So shall we move on to the drawbacks then? The opportunity costs, etc.? Yeah, let's start with let's start with the drawbacks. And this is probably the most controversial. Let's start with the drawbacks of information. <laughs> yeah, I love this one. It's really hard to discuss. But what you're talking about is the fact that ha- gaining the information that you gain is not always a pure benefit, right? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say that having information is actually ever a negative. But I think that a, a, a more defensible position is that it's not quite as valuable as people might think. And let me just give you two specific reasons why that might be the case. The first reason that the information is not as valuable as people might think is because when you play a lot of vintage, I mean a lot of vintage, and you do a lot of testing, you develop almost like a sixth sense based upon probabilities. Uh, it's it's pattern recognition, right? So, Kevin, you and I could sit down and play a game of vintage, and we could probably make a pretty accurate judgment about how often our opponents have force of wills and how many they likely have, mm-hmm. because it's a probabilistic question. Um, and what that means is that there are I'm going to call rhythms and flows to the the game the, the game the format. There are, there are very specific rhythms and and flows that you learn, and I think that um, knowledge of an opponent's hand can jar you out of some of those rhythms flows um, in not, in not always super helpful ways. Um, because, first of all, let me just give you the two specific examples. One is, let's say you probe your opponent on turn one, right? You may be making decisions overly based on what you see, let you see you, what the contents that you've seen, and not sufficiently accounting at the sort of, you know, let, let me just d- d- break it down into thinking fast and thinking flow, Daniel Kahneman's book, you know, the subconscious cognitive processes and, the, and then the conscious rational mind. What I'm trying to say is, if you probe your opponent on turn one, you see their hand, and then you're deciding what to do on turn two or turn three, there are going to be one or two cards you haven't seen, if not more. Having seen their hand, you may be overly basing your decisions on the cards that you've seen rather than the cards you haven't seen. And so be maybe more likely to, to fall into the trap of something that they you haven't seen um, rather than trusting your natural ingrained pattern recognition capacities, which are more probabilistic in nature. That's that's the first point on this on this specific the ways in which information could be not as great as I'm willing to say even harmful and if it if it makes you make poor decisions because of it. Mm-hmm. I think there's an analogy to that what you're talking about about being results oriented with mulligans and we're going to talk more about mulligans. Yeah. But there's there's an old I get, I don't know how to describe it but there's an old saying that people are on either side of in terms of when you choose to mulligan for mana reasons, for example, if you're looking for a particular type of mana or something, yeah. do you look at the top card of your deck or do you not? And there's people in the always look and there's people in the never look camp. <laughs> yeah. But it speaks to con- confirmation bias and what the value of information is yeah. because the never look people are on the position of you should always be making the right decision based on the probable aspects of your deck right? and don't be results-oriented. Don't look right. and make and change your decision making pattern right but the always look people are of the opinion that additional information is never bad if you know how to use it exactly and so it we're not talking about mulligan decisions yet here we're going to right but the point is is that 
information is never bad if you know how to integrate it into your thinking process. That's exactly right. I think that's such a critical point, and that's such a subtle point. In a sense, both camps are right. Both camps are right <laughs> because the, the yes. Never Look camp is absolutely correct in saying that that, that um, you know looking there should never change your future decision. But the the Always Look camp, which which I happen to be in, understands that if you have a large enough sample size, it becomes the it becomes your decision making process then becomes probabilistic, and so you. If you integrate it correctly and and don't say, oh, I should have done X because my top card was Black Lotus, but rather you just realize if you do it 100 times, you look at your top card 100 times in, in a very similar situation, then that, that actually gives you probabilistic information. Your sample yep. size is large enough that you can then sort of in a uh, probabilistic, you know, wave function, if you want to get quantum, <laughs> quantum mechanical here, uh, begin to understand maybe what which kinds of plays to lean into or not. Yep, yep, exactly. So uh, the value of information also is dramatically different depending on archetype. If the game is going to end right then and there, the information has far more value as a as a deterministic avenue than does that turn one probe out of a Delver deck that you mentioned earlier. So that's worth noting. The information value goes way up if you're about to end of the game and you Definitely. can figure out everything. Yeah, if the if your time the time horizon of the game itself affects the value of that information. And yep. that's to one of the points I made earlier, which is, you know, people can get jarred out of you, you, you know, it's it's kind of like this. You're sitting down and it's like uh let's say it's turn two or three. Let's say it's turn two and you can play Tinker here and you have force of will and you don't know your opponent's hand and you're trying to make a decision as to what to do. And you have a force of will to protect your tink your your tinker and they have like one mana up, right? And if they have like a Fluster Storm, you can't stop it. Or if they have a, a Pyroblast and a Force of Will, they're going to be able to stop it. And you're trying to make a judgment, what's the right play here? Mm -hmm. Well, the right play is entirely probabilistic. Um, and I think that there is a way in which Magic decks, this is the second point I wanted to make earlier, decks have a natural rhythm and flow, a sort of strategic... Um, uh, you know, all decks have a set of strategic objectives. And when you think about a deck's game plan, the game plan is dictated by a number of factors. But if you look, if you look at it not in the specific cases, but in the overall patterns that emerge from the aggregates of many cases, there are there are, there are clear patterns, and those patterns are dictated by probability. But the information that you get, you get, you know, it's certainly a danger that when you see your opponent's hand and you know, you know, four of their cards and you don't know two, that you're going to overly base your decisions on the four you know. But it's also a danger that the information that you have especially if your hand your opponent's hand is really weird <laughs> or unusual that it can it might prompt you out of your normal rhythms and flows and the reason this is a really important point and it gets to the point that you just made about whether to, the question of whether to look or not so much of magic and magic play is does not actually occur at the conscious level and, and that's because so much of magic is pattern recognition this is the if people really want to understand this idea they're going to have to read nobel prize winner daniel kahneman's book thinking fast and thinking slow but the basic gist is that and we may have talked about this in past podcasts mm -hmm. but we literally process billions of bits of information not billions millions of bits of information per second but we only can process 30 bits of conscious 30 to 40 bits of conscious information per second and so what happens is that most of what happens during the course of a magic game is based on pattern recognition, intuition, induction. Um, you know, it's not fully debated at the conscious level. You wouldn't be able to play magic very quickly if that if it was. Um, and so 
I think that knowledge of the opponent's hand in some cases can actually jar people out of their natural rhythms and induce them to make plays that that aren't necessarily um, always going to be wrong, but are going to be, be forcing you out of fast thinking, which is can be very productive, into slow thinking, which is where people can really overthink and get tripped up. So there's real dangers, is what I'm trying to say. There's dangers. There's real pitfalls that are hard to spot because they're based on cognitive science and social psychology. Would you say that, further to that point, that if you are an intuitive player, a very experienced player in the format or with yes. your deck that yes. you would be rewarded for not playing probe. Whereas yes. conversely, if you are a newer player, that you get more value out of the information. Absolutely. And I think the best example of that is Reed Duke. If you are a very, very skilled magic player who doesn't have very much experience in the format, then you will be able to, the information that you get from probe is at its maximum peak because you'll be able to use your, to, to continue to borrow Kahneman's dichotomy, you'll be able to do it all using your, conscious mind the the slow thinking and you'll be able to integrate that information and make optimal play decisions like if you're a kai buddha or a reed duke you're absolutely going to be rewarded for having that information but if you are someone who is a vintage expert um that information is going to be much much less valuable okay interesting that's my that's my view and, and not just much less valuable but depending on how you play and if depending on how you weight the information you've seen and how much it throws you out of your natural patterns and the ways in which you play a deck i mean you know <laughs> I, I wish I had come up with some examples before this, but you could imagine, for example, let's say you play an oath deck, right? And you you play hundreds and hundreds of games with your oath deck, and you just know, like you play you play a turn one oath, and you don't know why, but you just know that you know that it you generally win games by certain lines of play, and you you may at a conscious level know a lot of the reasons for that, but you may also not know. And there may be sort of lines of play, like a turn one oath that doesn't work out, that, that if they counter the oath, it's more likely to lead to like, let's say, a turn three or four show and tell. But that's not, you may not realize that at a conscious level, you know, because it, it just, the deck is designed to facilitate that strategic lot, that strategic pattern, but mm -hmm. you don't realize why. And so by knowing your opponent's hand, you may delay your, like, let's say you probe and you, your opponent has double force. Well, you're probably not going to play the oath until you can protect it with two counters, which may jar you. This may be a exa bad example, but I'm trying to illustrate a point. It may jar, prevent you from playing the oath, which will prevent you from playing the timely show and tell that will actually win the game. So there are there are sequences you can imagine, and you could probably construct a better example using delve spells, right? Where you, you don't decide not to do something that in the long run would have been better because you would have flashed back and itself for recall with Snapcaster Mage or played a delve spell, you know, that may look like in with a narrow lens, a narrow focus, or a magnifying or mi microscopic perspective of a particular play, it may look wrong, but from a broader viewpoint of the strategic flow of the game, it actually is, is something you should have done. But it's very hard to see that. And knowledge of your opponent's hands, I think, can push people into plays that may be wrong from that broader perspective. Steve, do you recall the scenario this week from Vintage Super League where Kai was playing with Belcher against Chris's Merfolk and Kai probed Chris in the early to mid game in game two? Do you recall what I'm talking about? Sure, yeah, of course. He was playing Randy, but yes, Randy. Setting, up, setting it up for our audience. So Kai is playing the Belcher deck that we've talked about with a few probes in it against Randy on Merfolk. Post sideboard. And Randy had brought in some one-mana counters for artifacts, some Annul and some Steel Sabotage in addition to his other counter package. And in, in game two, Kai probed Randy and saw his hand had a Force of Will and an Annul in it, and I think at least one other blue card. So both of the counters were online. 
and they had already traded some resources in ter- first turn or two, so Kai didn't have multiple threats to, to blow through those two counter spells. So he waited. He waited another turn or two when he had, I think, three spells he could cast, and he announced his first spell, which I think was an expedition map or something reasonably threatening that he knew would require a counter, which Randy annulled. And that tapped Randy down to just one mana, and I think Kai had enough to announce all his other spells, so Kai was confident. He plays his next artifact, and Randy casts Steel Sabotage on it, which Kai hadn't seen, but Randy had drawn over the course of the prior two or three turns. And I think that's an example of what you were talking about, where if Kai hadn't had the knowledge he had, he might have played into the annul earlier. But because he had the knowledge he had, he simply waited until he had enough threats to surmount the two counters he'd seen, and then just played right into the third counter. Right, right. And so I think that's an example of if Kai had been thinking probabilistically and thinking slowly about, well, wait a second, Randy's drawn two or three more cards and hasn't played any of them. What does that mean? I think he might have reached a different conclusion if he'd really sat down and thought about it, either with his fast thinking that he's normally used to without the information, or switching into a slower gear and thinking more about it, what he he did know. And he would have won that game. Uh, Conceivably. I don't know what the rest of the draws were, but, but I think that typifies what you're talking about that kai had partial information because the probe was a couple turns stale now and i think it may have led him to make a play that was not ideal in other circumstances right great example i mean i'm not claiming that that i'm right on this point but that's just you know it's almost impossible to prove or disprove one of these positions i just think all we can do is try and deepen our understanding of this issue and you know we should use all the information we have and i i mean i think there's no doubt that the way people the way people play magic they use both their you know pattern recognition as well as forward thinking and and when it comes to forward thinking there's no doubt the information matters when it comes to pattern recognition it can really be disruptive agreed i think we should move on to some of the other opportunity costs of playing probe in your deck then do it you've written at length about this so where do you want to begin? I mean, there's the opportunity cost of playing the card, but there's the opportunity cost in deck construction. I'd like to start with the um, the mulligan issue. Oh, sure. So there. So in in my my primer, I talk a lot about this, and one of the costs. I'm not sure if it's an opportunity cost, but it's definitely a cost of the card, is the complications it poses for mulliganing decisions. And there are a ton of examples that we could just dream up here that illustrate this problem. One of the key questions is, do you keep a zero land hand with probes? And, and the, you know, that's a hard question for a zero mana hand with no probes. I think, in fact, Dave Williams in one of the games in the Vintage Super League this season did just that and was not mm-hmm. rewarded for it. Yeah. So the question I think he is, was on the draw with a probe. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So the question is, would you keep would you keep a zero land hand with a probe? The answer is probably not, even on the draw. Maybe maybe on the draw. But Are we assuming have, a particular archetype here? No, because I, I know that changes the equation. But yeah. let me just, before we get into the specifics of archetypes, let me just say, well, what if you had a two, two probes in your hand? Mm-hmm. What if three? Certainly every probe in your hand increases the likelihood that you would keep it on the grounds that you'll find a mana. But it definitely... It, it illustrates the inherent difficulty and uncertainty in evaluating a hand when you're using these thinning cards. Yeah. And it amplifies the effect, the probabilistic factors that you already have to deal with with mulligans. Most yeah. of the time, people who construct their decks look at their opening hand, and if it has a reasonable mix of mana and castable spells, yes. at least some early game things or th- things that are on plan, then it's, it's a keep. I mean, that's you built your decks so if you want to play those spells. 
it's 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 a sophisticated mulligan that has castable spells that you still throw back because you know the matchup quite well and they're not the right spells and it's not a sophisticated mulligan if your spells are all uncastable what having probe one or more in your opening hand does is obscures the information you have with which to make that decision that's right the probes represent probabilistic blanks from your whole rest of your deck (laughs) right and to your point about mana ratios earlier in a delver deck that probe is 33 percent likely to be a land and in a tps it might be 50 percent likely in both decks it cuts the wrong way is the point in the delver deck you want it to be a land and it's not likely to be right in the other deck you want it to be a spell and it's not likely to be right so it cuts both ways it cuts the wrong ways so it, again you're rewarded for understanding the probabilities of your own deck construction during mulligan which is always true but it's amplified here right mulligan is hard enough it's mm-hmm. one of the most important parts of vintage and to have that in- uncertainty introduced or, or amplified or magnified in the mulligan decision ma- making matrix raises questions about the costs of the card versus its benefits mm-hmm. so to what extent what extent does that added uncertainty in the mulligan decision process outweigh any benefits that the card provides? That's a very important cost that cannot be lost. In yeah. Any any card that increases your deck's necessity to mulligan yeah. has to be very seriously examined. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think that's why a lot of decks... Probe is seeing a lot of play today in Vintage, but it's not seeing in play at four of. Exactly. And I think that's part of the reason. Yeah, and it's it's not just, it's it's also about balancing the cost versus the benefits. So Mm -hmm. to what extent does the the added uncertainty as a cost weigh against the benefits that it adds? Um, I I think now is a good time to talk about the distinction between card selection and and thinning. Um, Let me just, let me just, um, I don't really, hold on a second, let me take a look at my hand. I say, yeah. So to illustrate the distinction, to illustrate this distinction between thinning and card selection, let me just pose this question that I also pose in my primer, which is, would you rather draw the top card of your library for zero mana or the second card of your library for one mana with a sleight of hand or preordained, for example? Um, So thinning means that you're just getting to the next card. You're replacing itself, whereas selection is is something more substantial. So, um, you know, there are a number of ways to set up examples that can help us evaluate. You know, so you could imagine that if one of the two top cards of your library has great situational value and the other has low, then the um, if the high value card is the top card, then then probe is presumably better than the card selection card, right? But if the inverse is true, if it's the second card that's much much better, then the card selection card is probably better, or at least the probe is just not as good as the card selection card. So and it goes back to our point about the time horizon too. Right. If you have a low opportunity, not not opportunity cost. If you have a low situational value card that's second in your library probe is not good if the game's going to get to the point where you draw that card right if you're trying to get to it immediately because you're playing belcher or whatever you you have turn one right then yeah then that goes back to the fact that probe is always better for the decks that are going to end the game right now but if you've got any if if there's a low situational utility card in either slot and you're playing the sort of deck where you're going to draw that card just because the game's not going to end yeah then probe is the weaker choice either way Right, because you want to get, you want to. Um, you don't want to draw that card. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and I think, I think that um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that probe is better. Obviously, probe is better than sleight of hand because sleight of hand sees no play, while probe sees a lot of play. Mm-hmm. So the simple zero to one, you know, zero mana to one mana 
draw one card versus draw one of two cards is answered by the empirical evidence. But the empirical evidence, I think, also suggests that once you get beyond the C1, C2 cards for one mana value proposition, then, then the value goes away from probe towards the other card because preordain ponder and ponder and brainstorm will generally see play before probe right so the the scales seem to be tipped out of probe's hands once you get beyond choosing one of two cards and it's yeah and it's so i think what we're comparing there is the there's kind of a logarithmic value to how quickly the value of playing a spell for free is eclipsed by the value of being able to possibly go three cards deep in your library. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the difference between sleight of hand and preordain is that potential third card deep, which in in the world of situationally valuable cards such as vintage or situationally powerful cards, that starts to really increase in value quickly where the cost of paying the blue mana versus paying the two life starts to quickly diminish. Yeah. It's worth noting too that Gitexian Probe and Preordain are generally speaking found together in decks. <laughs> with a few exceptions, there it's those kind of decks tend to start with three or four preordains and then one to three probes these days. Well, zero to three probes. It's, so Yeah, it's amazing how important preordain has become in vintage, even in the last six months. I mean, certainly preordain's value has gone up with delve cards, but mm-hmm. I mean the oath deck that won the vintage championship had four preordains. Consistency yep. is such a premium in this format. Yeah, and the preordain count in that top eight was probably sixteen or twenty, don't you think? I, I don't have it off the top of my head, but there were how many Delver decks in that top eight? I'm gonna look that up right now. Yeah. Preordain is is becoming nearly as ubiquitous as force of will and mist and mental misstep, which is saying something. There were twenty one preordains in the two thousand fourteen vintage championship top eight. Okay, there you go. Almost as many as there were force of wills. There would be twenty four force of wills. And as for probes, there were yeah, there's only six probes in the vintage championship top eight. Um only two of the decks had probes and there were four Delver decks. And one of them had two and then Ryan Everhart had four. So which des- definitely speaks to the challenge in evaluating the card, because in an otherwise homogeneous archetype, there was not very much variability in those Delver decks, but to see players vacillating from none to two probes is very interesting. It speaks to how challenging it is to evaluate the card. No doubt. But we haven't even gotten to the most critical point, I feel, and that is the, the point that you've been alluding to, which is the opportunity cost of the card. And let me just, just read this, these couple sentence, sentences from my primer, because I think it puts it probably better than I could on the fly. The most serious problem I have with the card in a Delver shell is that cutting spells for probes cuts into the density of the deck in other ways. The cards that are more likely to get shaved are counter spells. What matters with respect to counter magic isn't just which counter spells you have, but their overall density in your deck. And of course, their ratios. Cutting spell pierces, fluster storms, or even gush for probes doesn't actually balance out by adding probes. You are actually weakening your game in a number of ways. It means that when searching for counter magic with Preordain, you are less likely to find situ- situational counter magic early on. It means that you can't sculpt your hand as easily for specific matchup situations. It means that you will be less likely to defend yourself from sustained or powerful assaults. Probe may enable you to be more explosive, but it weakens your defenses. At the end of the day, I think the opportunity cost of the card is too great. Oh, you know, ca- card selection and counter spell density here is more important than deck thinning. That's that's my baseline position on the card. Let me just reframe it in a different way that perhaps is maybe a bit more understandable. If you think about a Delver deck or a deck like that, and you can think about the cards that compose it, you have a couple of categories, right? You've got your mana, which are, let's say, 
15, 14 lands, maybe some 15 lands and some, a couple of artifact accelerants. You've got your draw spells, your gush, your preordain, you've got your uh, your draw package of delve spells, and you've got your creatures. And then the fourth major category is your counter magic. If the idea that there's, there's two ways of thinking about thinning, the, the first way of thinking about thinning is the way we set out the beginning of this discussion, which is that you want to find your best cards early and often. The other way of thinking about thinning is that you just proportionally decrease the ratios of cards in your deck and add probes. The problem is that the second never actually happens in, pro- in practice. You're not going to cut a preordain for a probe. You can never cut a preordain for a probe in a Delver-type deck because preordain card selection is so much more important than the card thinning because the way that those decks are constructed with a tiny mana base puts the absolute premium imperative on finding the second land and that's why they're there because they're constructed on turbo zero principle so you can't actually just put four probes in a deck or any number of probes in a deck and say the probe is just going to be replacing these other cards and therefore you're not actually reducing the ratios of those cards in practice it just never ever works like that what actually ends up happening is that you end up cutting of those four categories you have to end up cutting counter magic you're not going to cut your four of treasure crews before treasure crews was restricted you're not going to cut your um any of your restricted cards you can't cut any of your mana out you're probably not going to cut a young pyromancer or a delver so what ultimately gets cut what gets cut is counter magic and um there are a couple problems with that the first problem is that in a deck that is Compared to say a TPS or a Belcher, probably the best card in the Delver deck is probably Force of Will. So you're not you would never ever cut a Force of Will, right? Mm-hmm. The second problem is that um, when you cut four counter spells or two counter spells and add two del two probes, you've actually dramatically reduced the density of counter magic in your deck such that all the problems I just read about become manifest. When you play Preordain, you're much less likely to find a counterspell. When you, any given draw is less likely to be a counterspell. So you're less likely to be able to sculpt the kinds of powerful defensive hands. Now, if you're much if you're much more oriented towards playing these decks aggressively, then Probe is probably much more powerful. But if you want to be able to pursue both the control role and the aggro role, I think Probe is not where you want to be. I think it's worth pointing out a couple of scenarios that illustrate what you're talking about in terms of density because if you there it's very common when you're playing Delver and you get into the mid game in many matchups for you to use gush as a tool to find additional resources on your opponent's turn or to win counter wars. Yeah. If you need to gush into a fluster storm or a, a spell pierce or something similar and you gush into a probe, that probe might be replacing a fluster storm that's right there on the top of your deck. Yes. But doesn't help you when it's your opponent's turn. And similarly, when you're preordaining in the mid game and you're looking for some more situationally relevant cards, maybe you need a lightning bolt pretty badly and you preordain into a probe that mirrors the, the, the blank from our mulligan discussion. That probe is just the next card in your deck, but it doesn't help you choose it when you're looking with a preordain. And so you're reducing the efficacy of so many other cards in your deck by adding all these mystery cards or these blanks that represent the next card, which you can't see. But by now, anyone who's listening to this podcast or watched me in the BSL knows that I play Delver like a hard control deck. I play Delver like Landstill or Keeper. <laughs> and the reason is because I play all my Gush decks that way. And that's because Gush decks have this inherent advantage with a light mana base and spell density and a huge amount of counter magic. I play Doomsday like a hard control deck. And they, they can they can combo out on it whenever you need to. Um, but, but when you play Probe, you dramatically reduce your ability to play a hard control role. And so I think my, my friend Ryan Eberhardt 
put it best, he said, Steve wouldn't be caught dead with Gitaxian Probe in his Delver deck or my Mentor deck. And he's absolutely, <laughs> I, I wouldn't. And that's that's the reason why. Because I believe the reasons you just stated for the reasons I stated, it critically weakens your capacity to play a control role. And that's echoed in the metagame. The one, well, an archetype that you just don't see probes in are control decks. Grixis Control, Landstill, Bomberman mostly. These kind of decks don't play probes. Sure. And I think it's primarily because of the reason you just described is you they don't fit with the strategy and the tactics that you're deploying in most matchups. But it's still hard to balance all these factors against each other. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're playing Power Mancers and Mentors, the generation of tokens, they have celerity towards a faster dig-through time, the you know capacity to you know you know it's still a turn one probe has the information still has value you know if you're debating between turn one ancestral or turn one delver you know or even if you're one example i give in my article is if you're playing as a workshop deck you play probe on turn one and you're debating between preordain or a delver seeing your opponent's hand may tell you exactly which one of those plays is better you know you can imagine that if your opponent doesn't have wasteland or is, is, is about to play you know for example if your opponent's about to play a lodestone goal maybe the delver is a better play than playing the preordain right mm-hmm. yep so. yep so the information still has some value and i think that lets us dovetail into how probe is being used today or how much it is because we've talked kind of negatively about the opportunity cost and what it does to deck construction and mulligan decisions etc the simple truth is is that today probe is seeing far more play than it ever has and if you look at the statistics I'll, i won't i won't read a whole bunch of numbers to our listeners here Probe saw a, a modest spike in 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 appearances right when it came out. People were energized by it. The month after months after it came out, it made six or seven top eight appearances a month for a couple of months, and then this it died down. This is in 2011. Yes. Then it died down. Very modest performances. One to three appearances in a top eight a month. Sometimes zero. Sometimes five. But then there was a big jump in October of 2014. A big jump from from one to five appearances a month in the middle of 2014 up to 18 appearances in October of 2014. And what happened in October of 2014? Dig to Time and Treasure Cruise were printed. So the community completely embraced and responded to the celerity topic that you've discussed and recognized that Gitaxian Probe was a great way to fuel your delve spells, your unrestricted treasure cruise at the time, which the community jumped onto, and subsequently dig through time as well. And then shortly after that, Monastery Mentor is printed, which helped add fuel to the fire, even though treasure cruise was restricted. But it but it isn't it's interesting to note that again of the vintage top eight where there were four Delverbacks, only two had probes and the finalists didn't. That's right. right. That's right. So in the course of the three months immediately following the Delve Spell's appearance in October, the total appearances that is in decks on Morphling.D was still 42. Wow. Now, that's a lot. If we were considering a new card, that would be a lot. Wait, doesn't I mean, it say 47? Well, I'm counting 18, 14, and 10. Oh, okay. October, November, got December of 2014, yeah. That's a lot. But with the restriction of Treasure Cruise, and I also think some other metagame reactions to Delver that have tempered its success, the appearances have fallen back down. In January of this year, it was 7. In February, it was 6. Is it possible that they're just missing some of these results, though, Kevin? I think that's certainly possible, sure. 
I think that Probe is overrepresented in the Vintage Super League because the specifically because Belcher and Doomsday get far more play in the Vintage Super League than they do in in Paper Magic. But the Probe only shows up as a one or two of in Doomsday, if that. I don't Granted. even tend to play it in my Doomsday deck. Granted. Yeah. But it is a key it is a key factor in the Belcher deck. Yeah. Which is admittedly overrepresented in VSL. And also Delver, the Delver lists showing up in VSL tend to have probes in them as well. Yours don't, but Rich's do and some other players definitely have played with probe. So I think probe has settled into a, a place in the metagame where it is a common but not a granted contributor to a number of archetypes. If you want to see it in action, you can see it in the VSL, but it's in Delver to the tune of one to three copies. It's in Belcher and Doomsday, although as Steve points out, not always. It's in Omni Oath. It's in various iterations of Mentor. Mentor has not settled down into any real established constructed lists at this time. There's still a lot of variants of Mentor. So despite all of the costs and benefits that we've mentioned, Probe is actually at its its, it's uh, highest sustained appearance in Vintage since the Delve spells were printed. Fascinating. So, Steve, how would you summarize? How would you summarize Gitaxi and Probe? I mean, our <laughs> audience is made up of people who are playing with Probe today, certainly. Yeah. People who are maybe haven't or don't play the kind of decks that shows up in today and are considering it for other decks, and people who've never thought about the issue at, at much length at all. Here's, I think, the critical point. The critical point is, more so than almost any other card in the format, Gitaxi and Probe brings a number of different value propositions that are very, very different and not always integrated. And in fact, the, of the half dozen sort of benefits that we've articulated that Probe provides, there are, I can't think of a single deck that's really going to be maximizing all of them. <laughs> you know, usually a deck maximizes some of them and then another deck or archetype maximizes the other one. But what it brings into focus is the inseparability of these various value propositions or benefits that they're very hard, they're very difficult to analyze because you can't separate them out and then assess their value. Now we could go back to the thought experiment, we should, that I had at the beginning of the, the discussion. Um, and, and you can run those thought experiments as a way to try and clarify your thinking, but they don't answer the question because to answer it, we really need empirical data. Mm -hmm. You know, because you just, there's no way to say what's the cost of the two life? You know, what's the value of the information alone, right? You know, it's, it's just because a lot of these things by themselves just wouldn't see play. You know, um, you know if there was a card that was free that just let you saw your opponent's hand, it wouldn't see any play. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the, the, so I think that what Kataxan Probe does, it brings into focus the complexity of the, of the card because of the myriad benefits and then the subtle costs and the very difficult balancing of those costs against those benefits in the ultimate decision of whether to, to run it or not. I'm, I'm firmly in the camp against Probe in Delver-type decks because I think the bottom line is that it means you're going to be cutting counter magic and weakening your control role. Mm -hmm. um, that you're, that you're not just cutting counter magic, but actually cutting your overall density or ratio of counter magic. That is, cutting four counter spells for four probes does not actually is not actually an even trade. You mm -hmm. actually have a net reduction in the density of counter magic and access to counter magic, um, and you can mathematically prove that. Right? That's pretty easy to establish. Um, that pr that you you can't just cut one for one and expect the density to remain the same. It doesn't work that way. Um, so I think that's the bottom line. That, that those are the two key takeaways. Which actually three. One that there are 
a number, the probe does a lot of things and that it's very difficult to weigh at a granular level the benefits and the pros and cons against each other. Secondly, it shows the complexity of the car. And finally, I think the opportunity cost is too high in decks like Delver and gush, and gush decks in general. I support everything you said. I would like to add that there are, for other archetypes, probe has dramatically different value propositions. Right. I think it is an excellent inclusion in Blue Belcher. I think there are a number of other moderate synergies that we haven't really touched on here. But Probe being a blue card is especially relevant in the blue Belcher deck because of its interaction with both Force of Will and Chrome Mox. Yes. So those are key interactions that shouldn't be elided. Um, well, and also, there are other moderate interactions with simple things that are ma- mainstays in Vintage. Uh, Mirage top deck tutors. Probe is a good combo. Yes. With those. <laughs> so it, it turns a... Um, it turns Imperial Seal into a one black demonic tutor at the cost of four life. Um, it's good with Sensei's Divining Top, for example. And it's also good with certain other very early turn plays in otherwise mid-game decks. Right. And the, my favorite example of that is one of my pet cards lately, which is Mystic Remora. In your opening hand in a in a Mystic Remora deck, Gataxian Probe is even even better than it would be in an otherwise controlling mid-game kind of deck like that because it lets you know how good your Remora is going to be on the play. And so information there serves a kind of a different purpose. You're using information planning for the longer game, but it's critical to know it early on. So it tells you like whether to play it or how long to keep it up. Yeah. If you probe your opponent and they have a, a grip full of Moxin, then your Remora is amazing. If they have all land and counters and, and other stuff that they're not even going to play for the first three turns, you it, can hold off on your Remora for a turn or two got it. and get more value that way. So the thought experiment that I asked, what if mm-hmm. Street Wraith doesn't, didn't cost you life? I think the, the logic that I've set out suggests that you would not play for Street Wraith in a Delver-type deck because thinning just isn't valuable enough, that there's no set of functions you would cut, skimp on. You can't cut a land mm-hmm. out of, you know, 14 lands is the bot bare minimum. You need to have um, you need to have a, a land. Um, you, you, you're not going to cut a mox. You're not going to cut a, um, you know, a gush or a dig. Um, you could maybe cut a creature, but ultimately you're going to be most cutting into your counter magic. And then all the things that we just talked about come into play. The yeah. playing, you know, gush on your opponent's turn, which I try not to do, but you will often do in a, in a big counter war. Um, you know, all those things, you'd rather have card selection, than, you'd rather pay one mana and preordain than no mana. And the deck homogenate, you know, the deck power level is not sufficiently varied, except with, I mean, the most powerful card is, again, like Force of Will and Social Recall and Black Lotus, cards like that, that it's, it's that thing is just not sufficiently valuable, I don't think. But, yeah. but if you're playing a Belcher deck, you'd automatically run those four cards mm-hmm. we talked about. Yep, absolutely. I think that's two ends of the spectrum, and there's a number of other decks along the, the way. And I think that such a card would be adopted as a four of in more decks than Probe is a four of today, which is to say almost none. And But I think that it would not be ubiquitous. It wouldn't be all the metagame. You'd still have this, those Delver decks, as you described, plus things like Landstill and Grixis Control that just wouldn't they wouldn't play that free straight, Street Wraith card. They couldn't afford to. So I think it would be a mix. 
I think, and as you're well aware, and we've talked about in a number of contexts, metagames are very complex systems. And I think there's a chance that a, a truly free street wraith would increase the play of certain archetypes because certain interactions have become more reliably and more powerfully effective. Yeah. You would see maybe more Imperial seals than you do today because right. of how much better a card it is on turn one with a street wraith that's free. So I think there'd be complex interactions that we, right. we can't we can't accurately predict. But right. I think it's fair to say that it would not immediately be a four of in all the decks. Right. And we've laid out which decks would want it and which decks wouldn't. I mean, another way of thinking about Chris Bukula's quote is that you, you kind of need like omniscience to be able to know. You know, it's an it's you know, it's epistemological question. You know, yeah. How, how do you know something? And you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, his question is beautifully phrased for for the way you just said it because he says. How many Gitaxian probes should I have been playing? Yeah. He didn't say we. Yeah. He just said him. Right. Because I genuinely think, for all the reasons we've laid out here, that the answer is actually personal, based not yeah. only on what type of player you are, but of course what type of deck you're bringing to an event, and your level of comfort with your deck in the metagame. Yes, and, your style, not just, and the roles that you seek to pursue with the, with your deck, which yeah. is reflective of your style. Yeah. And, and, I do think there are some extremes in the spectrum, like Belcher and like Landstill, that they always want all or none. Right. But there's a lot of space in the middle where, as the top eight for Vintage Champs uh, last year shows, Delver, it's, there's no given Delver list that should have X number of probes in it. That doesn't really, that's not, a, there's no truism that says it's it's one, two, or four. Yeah. It's very personal and specific. Well, we, we can't pretend to have answered the question that, uh, <laughs> that Chris um, posed, but I, I think that we have made at least some good progress towards answering it and hopefully in, helped inform your decision as you consider whether and in what quantities to run Probe. Yeah, and I would encourage anyone who is currently running Probe, if you haven't considered all these factors, then pay closer attention to the next handful of Probes you cast in games or in tournaments and think about or probes you've seen that you had to put somewhere else because it was a preordain or a mulligan. Think critically about the value that a probe is bringing to your deck. Uh, how many probes do you think Chris Pekula should have been playing? Yeah. We're joined by a special guest, longtime vintage player and tournament organizer, best known for hosting the Waterbury Tournaments, long-standing East Coast vintage tournaments that are very popular, none other than one Raymond Robillard. Ray, welcome. How are you guys? Thanks for having me on. Now, Steve, you had a, a particular reason for wanting to bring Ray on and talk to him. Can you tell us about that? Well, for a couple of years now, I've been working on this project called The History of Vintage, and it, I've been release, releasing a chapter on a periodic basis that looks at every year in the history of the format since 1993. And I had con reached out to Ray and asked if he would be willing to be interviewed, especially since I've been working on the chapter 2003. And um, and I just thought, you know, it would be great to actually just interview him as part of the podcast because Ray is such an interesting cat and has uh, so much wisdom and uh, uh, insights to share. I think it would just, you know, he's also just a fascinating guy. <laughs> yeah, and 2003 was that, that big boon for vintage. Um, I saw both with, with the events that I held, but also just the 
the excitement and the the player base growing almost exponentially. It, it was it was really a great year for Vintage. Cool. Can't wait to get dive in then and get into some of this. 2003, is, in our last podcast, we talked a little bit about it. It was just a sweet year in the history of Vintage. So much happened. But I was doing my research, and I, I didn't have to get very far before I started finding a lot of your tournaments, Ray. Yeah. And your tournaments were making a big splash. It wasn't just the fact that you, uh, you know, the, the size of the tournaments and you were holding, which were becoming some of the largest tournaments on the you know in in the world not just the united states but it's also the excitement that players had about your tournament sure so i wonder if you could maybe just like begin by telling us what was so unique about what you were doing and and how did you spark that enthusiasm and passion that people really had and raving people really rave about your tournament um well i think it was um one of the key things that i i didn't even realize i was doing at first and i as i continued to hold my tournaments in this fashion it made sense that that's why uh, so many people were were coming back constantly, this thing that I was doing. And it was making sure that every single person left the tournament with a story or an experience or, you know, even if it was uh, a $1 side door prize or something. Like, you don't really need to work very hard to get your really competitive players, the players that constantly finish in the top eight, to come back. They're, they're going to come back because they keep, repeating those high performances and and they have the prizes you know that that come with that and the recognition but you want to make sure that if you want to have a player base for your tournaments that grows and grows and grows you want to give those people that are going 2-4 drop 3-3 three, three drop um a fully packed exciting day um so what i what i tried to do right from the very beginning with all my tournaments was have something for everyone i wanted to have these side events free side events for people who bombed out of the tournament pretty early i wanted to have um magic trivia for your you know your your player who maybe isn't the the most savvy magic player but um can tell you any flavor text of any card in the history of magic um and even just some prizes for like you know exciting plays of the day or unique cards that people played in their deck um i found a way to to try to get as many players as possible having some story or something to talk about on the car ride home and i think that went a long way to making the event special for players and for giving them you know an incentive and a, a desire to come back for future events wow we'll, we'll get into much more detail about that but it may be helpful to rewind a little bit and sure. just give folks a sense of like when you started organizing tournaments how you sort of fell into that or began doing that what motivated you to or inspired you and probably a better word to start doing that and 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 then sort of how it, it sort of began to blow up so what what inspired you to start doing these tournaments how'd you how'd you get into that well you know i've, I've been playing for um about as long as i can remember i mean uh when i started playing it was freshman year of of high school um i still remember the first starter i ever opened the rares were um, <laughs> titania's song savannah lions and savannah oh the good and, old revive starter yeah yep and I, I said wow you know savannah lions this card is is amazing for its its mana cost but why did i get a land in my rare spot <laughs> <laughs> um i just the game just fascinated me the the complexity of it the the number of um pieces that i had not yet seen that discovery of, of seeing all these new cards and so i'd say within a year i got into tournament play um I was the new kid on the block. I, I would go to these tournaments held by this guy, Ron Koenig. Um, he called them Ron Con, and they were held out of Danbury, Connecticut, um, about 30 minutes from Waterbury. And, you know, I played at my local game shop, and I remember the first time I walked into that um, Ron Con tournament in that 
hotel hall and i it was like i think it was like a kid walking into disneyland for the first time it was there was excitement everywhere players uh playing there were some uh people at tables trading there were vendors there was uh i just felt like um it was it was something to see all these people having such delight in sharing in this hobby and i i have told ron this uh in years since i started running events that he was the inspiration for the the events that I held because I wanted to give that same feeling that I had um, to as many players as I could. Um, and wow. so uh, I ended up running some small tournaments out of a uh, couple local stores in like 1999, 2000, just to get my feet wet. Um, I happened to be in the right place at the right time because uh, I worked at the Courtyard by Marriott in Waterbury for the, um, well, since 1996 up until I, I started teaching. And I got a huge discount on the the rooms there, so that's where that's why I started having the tournaments there. It provided the the perfect venues. That that hotel now is synonymous with the original Waterbury events. I, I remember it well. Um, and you know, it's funny when we were talking yesterday, you you alluded to outliers, and yes. what's amazing is that Goldwell, I think his name is. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell's book. But it's just such an amazing like coincidence and intersection of right time, right place that you're working in the water, you're working at the hotel, mm-hmm. you can get this this room for very cheap, and you have this passion for for magic and, and type and almost tournament organizing, give people such a good time. And yeah. all the circumstances just fell together at the right place, the right time. It's you know, amazing because oh sorry. It's amazing because you know part of what I'm trying to do in my in my history is to try and tell the story, primarily the story of the, these great schools of magic and the and the sort of evolution of the metagame. But more than that, I'm also telling the story of the people who who really drove drove the format. And one of the key stories is that you know after the separation of type one and type two, type one basically went into hibernation for a couple of years. You know, with a slow decline. There was there were some efforts to to keep it alive, like the Inquest tournaments in 1996. But what's interesting is that around 2000 or 2001. B Dominia is is re, you know on the internet creating an online community of of passionate players for this format and that helps spur these little communities of interest you know in sure, in yeah. places like you know in, in various spots in New England certainly in neutral ground certainly you know at the Duelman in Germany and Castricum in the Netherlands but what, what's most interesting is the, the it, what's really the hubs that exist for the format are basically these big convention halls these these places of what I call sort of pilgrimage retreats right like the like gen con and origins yeah and those are kind of like the anchors for the format but you're really the first person that i'm aware of that moves the format's paper tournament out of these convention halls and and into 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 tournament settings that that are not necessarily even hosted by local schools, local stores, but build on them. So you're like the first regional effort that, that tries to create a hub for all these little local spokes. You know, it's part of the, a larger network. And that's yeah. such a paradigm shift from the Origins Gen Con model or even the local store model to trying to do something completely different. Yeah, no, I agree. Um you know, one of the other things we t- we talk about the the perfect storm of um in the time between like 1998 and when I started to really have my vintage events take off, um I did play a lot of type two. I played a lot of different formats. Um, there was a time when I worked really hard at uh making the pro tour and I made one team pro tour. Um, and I also did a lot of just um weekend um you know how there's there's some people who they get up Saturday morning, some some elderly folks, and they have their map and they're gonna hit up 
all 14 tag sales in town and they so they have their their plan laid out and they have to go first thing in the morning um you know i used to do that with stores me and my buddy would go and play in a local event here go to this store to trade um so i, I made this this web of connections with a lot of local stores a lot of local players which helped me grow my player base for the events um and so that and, helped and also spread. if i could just if i could just interrupt sure. at this point I mean, it's it's also you know the important story here part, one of the important elements of the story is that the internet was becoming much more widespread in usage and so yep. you're, you're able to use the internet to also communicate and correspond and sort of market your tournaments not just yep. but you it sounds like you were also proactively building like these these relationships and connections um as well oh yeah yeah um I, and I think what went away in helping build those connections too was uh, in one way that the events were different than the classic like neutral ground or Gen Con or convention model is I was just a guy. You know, I wasn't, I, I can't tell you how many events, how many huh. times people would come up and they would say, you know, can I pay by credit card? And I say, I, I, I don't have a, a credit card <laughs> machine. Yeah. And they're, they're like, well, aren't you, what store are you with? And I said, no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just a guy who runs tournaments. Like, <laughs> I, I don't have a business. I don't, I'm not part of a store. I'm just a guy. Um, <laughs> and maybe, maybe that helps, you know, make it a little more of a down to earth experience. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's just in my mind or maybe there is some truth to that. Well, part of what's so important and problematic about the convention hall tournament experience, you know, is that you know Origins was original was owned by at one point I believe by Wizards. I think mm -hmm. they bought Gamma and then they sold it. And, and certainly Gen Con had you know was not only the birthplace of, of Magic and had a very heavy Magic footprint. But but I think what's problem what's been problematic about it is that while it was great that they actually had Type One tournaments and they were the one of the very very few places you could find you know regional Type One tournaments where there are more than right. just a handful of players, they were you know shockingly indifferent to what players really wanted. Right? It was just like you know someone won the con some company some tournament organizer won the contract for the, that event and just like you know held like their you know Origins had their four you know their their four or one a day type one tournaments that were like swiss plus one the prize payouts were modest at best garbage packs <laughs> yeah yeah i mean in, in in to some extent that's continued to be true even in the later you know later years of gen con and, and origins kind of faded away in importance of type one but but i mean that was part of what was such a sharp contrast is that you know you had like these somewhat indifferent tournament organizers creating sort of lackluster somewhat under inter interesting you know prize pool packages mm -hmm. that really did you know the, i mean the people who played in them were not playing necessarily for the prizes but because of the passion for the format and so you you not only you know shifted the paradigm by moving out of these conventions but you you had a really player focused approach you know oh yeah absolutely um i think part of the pressure was off me because again i was just a guy like it wasn't all about the bottom line it wasn't about profit margins it was yeah. about and i've said this at many events i said I didn't lose money, so it doesn't matter what happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? As long as, as long as um, I'm not losing money, then because if I'm losing money, why am I just doing this as just a guy running tournaments? It's, it wouldn't be fair to me for to lose money. I don't have to make a ton of money on these things. I'm not a business, so it allowed me to give more back. If if we had 20 more players than I thought, um, you know, or that I had planned for based on the prize support, then I just toss that money back in the prize pool. 
Ray, your tournaments are known for all the ancillary activities, which we've touched on. <laughs> but can you talk about these activities and how you came to add them to your events? Oh, yeah. Um, some of them were just I don't know, concoctions in my head. Some of them were inspired by certain players. Um, <laughs> and there were even some, especially in the, I'd say between Manager and Open 1 and, and 5, when we hit that record attendance um, there were a lot of events, a lot of activities that weren't planned that just happened. Um, you know, so to, well, to start off with, you know, there was the, the card throwing competition, <laughs> which was a classic way back in the day. I don't remember um, that one. Share that one. How did that... So I, I think it was one of the events before it was called the manager and open. Um, at the end of one of the, uh, one of the days there was just somebody who was demonstrating the art of flicking magic cards, 40, 50 feet across the room. So on the spur of the moment, I said, you know what? This is now a, a competition. I took out a couple of booster packs and I had everybody take one basic land, sign their initials or their name to it. And uh, everybody throws as far as they can. Three farthest ones win a booster pack. And it was like a stupid little thing. But again, maybe those three people didn't win anything else on the day. And then they got to feel that pride of like, I can throw a magic card farther than anyone else. So that was kind of cool. And I'm going to tell people about that when I go back to my local store. And maybe that person came back. Maybe he even brought a couple of people with him. I don't know. Um, I'll never know definitively the effects, but I, I feel like things like that are those kinds of stories that, that make the tournament um, memorable for people who uh, it might not be just because they do you know, top aided. Um, so we had, we had a, well, we, magic trivia is, is a staple at the events that I run that caps off every day one. Um, it's Jeopardy style, free to enter, all teams win prizes. And it's, it's just a lot of fun. Um, we've done things like, uh, magic categories, yeah. um, a play of the day contest where you could submit if you saw something really cool. Um, there was one side thing that I ran for a number of tournaments where, um, the judges and I would go through all the deck lists and we'd find the most bizarre card choice or deck choice, like something that just has you scratching your head. Um, and then some of the events, I mean, some things just happened almost spontaneously. Um, one example was, at, I think it was the Mandarin Open 3. Somebody decided, at like round four, that after the Swiss rounds were done, we should have a bacon eating contest. <laughs> <laughs> now, keep in mind, you know, this is at the hotel. It's the main ballroom. Um and so this person who bound out the tournament goes down the street to the supermarket and comes back with like 10 containers of bacon bits. <laughs> and we got a whole bunch of people. And the goal was you had to like down the entire canister of bacon bits first. Oh but God. if you can imagine how awful that sounds, um, it was way worse actually doing it. <laughs> uh, we had um, pictures of ice water that we got from the, the restaurant right next door to the ballroom. And so everybody's sitting there and they're chugging uh, bacon bits and then just literally two-handing the, the pitcher of water into their mouth uh, because of how, how much sodium they were consuming. <laughs> and again, I mean, that's what I love. I love SCG tournaments, but what SCG tournament has a bacon bit eating contest? Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, just so folks know, you um, you described like your, your, your first Mandarin Open. Even though you were organizing these tournaments since 2001, your first official, the Mandarin Open, won was when exactly? I believe it was... Uh, 2003. It was it was sort of in the fall of 2003, right? I think so. Yeah. And yeah. and the fifth one was the big one, which is where you hit 
like 200 and some players, and Kevin and I were both there. And that yeah, was, was 2005. Yeah, 2004, 2005. I think the I think it was like January 2005. That was yeah. that was such an sh- amazing event because it was just the lo- it was just the largest vintage it was the largest vintage event tournament until basically what the uh, the European the, tournament. Yeah, until the um, the vintage championship just like a year or two ago. Really? Oh, are you in, talking like domestic or? Yeah, in the United States, it was the largest vintage tournament in the United States for. I mean, it held that record for like seven years. Yeah, something like that. Eight, eight, year, eight years, just, yeah. which is just a testament to what you had done. And I guess I'll follow up Kevin's question. Uh, I'm looking at a tournament, Waterbury tournament announcement for March 23rd, 2003. Um, and you have, uh, in addition to the first prizes of two, uh, two Moxen, sorry, you have a Mox and then you have a Library of Alexandria. You've got a Magic Trivia 50 Rare Raffle Play of the Day contest, yep. odd card choice contest, card throwing contest, and round situational prizes. So what, what is a Play of the Day contest? Oh, yeah. So, you know, let's say you um, you were just either it was a match you were in or you were um, uh, you happened to walk past a match and you saw some really cool play, some really awesome thing that some player did. Maybe they even win them the game. Maybe they just, I don't know, had all the Chimera from Visions <laughs> on the board and they assembled Voltron or something. You know? Any any cool play, you can write it down on a piece of paper and uh, submit it. And um, I think what I did was there was a prize both for the person who submitted the play of the day and who the actual player who pulled it off. Um so I almost wonder if that, you know, built some camaraderie. I can imagine a situation where somebody <laughs> submits a play they saw and it's a player they didn't even know and now they're having a conversation. These two people just met because somebody reported somebody else's cool play. You know, Ray, one thing, you've talked a lot about your motivations here mm-hmm. and they're great. One thing I haven't heard though is why vintage? You could have done all of this for Type 2 or Draft or Legacy. Mm, yeah, uh, well, Legacy... Wasn't really legacy at the time. Right. I mean, I Type one point five then. One point five. Um, it, it sort of was the the transformation I went through in eventually coming to be pretty much just an eternal player. Um, like I said, I, I played really competitively. Uh, in like the late nineteen nineties into two thousand two thousand one. Um, and. For, for players who know me, you know, I'm all about fair play. I've I've given myself game and match losses when I've noticed things that my opponents haven't caught that I did wrong or stuff like that. Um, so I'm the first person to call myself out on things. And playing competitively, I know there's a lot of fair and just competitive players, but there's also more people who feel compelled to take advantage of the rules and to cheat. Um, my friend Dave, for example, who went to a lot of those PTQs with me, was playing against uh, Mouth, Joe Kambakis, or however you pronounce his name. He's a player from Boston. Uh, when he had substituted in, or added in, a uh, Crippling Fatigue and um, Chainer's Edict to his Odyssey Black Seal deck. Mm. And got a, I think he got a two or three year suspension for that. We just saw so many of those instances in our attempts to make the Pro Tour that I personally got really jaded. I didn't want to have anything to do with competitive magic. I was seeking a format where people were in it for um, the joy of the game, for uh, the camaraderie, for sharing this passion with people who, you know, didn't really feel like they needed the prestige of making the Pro Tour the money that they could win with it. And I found that with Vintage. Um, You know, I I played it every once in a while while I was playing more competitively, and then I I think the the time when I I would say I officially broke into it... um, I'm still kind of doing the tour of these stores around Connecticut, and I went to a place that doesn't exist anymore, 
And literally, it has to be the smallest town in Connecticut, Tariffville, Connecticut. Um, I think it's a population of like 2,000 people or something. And there's a little store right next to the post office where my friend Keith Johnson introduced me to a couple of out-of-state players who came down for their vintage event. So then I found myself up at uh, the Hadley tournaments as a result of that. And I met people like Steve Houdlette, Dave Lawrence, Ben Kowal, um, you know, a lot of that Hadley crew. Um, well, on that point, let me just ask you a question. Sure. So, you know, you were conscious of the fact that you were bringing together disparate, like smaller communities, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you knew that people were coming to you. You were like you were a hub of this network, right? Mm-hmm. So, what, what exactly, what were those sub communities that you were bringing together into a larger regional event? Exactly, what were those like little groups? Like you, one of them is the Hadley Crew. What, what okay. were the other? Ones? Okay, so there was there was the Hadley Crew. There was a group, um, they were, I think they were called Team Goat. Alex Cressfield, uh, Mike Roach, uh, they were out of the New Jersey area. Um, there were a couple of players from like the New York, Long Island area. Um, some players who I don't think play too often anymore. Um, names I can't remember too well. Obviously, well, Jeff Anon was uh, yeah. a memorable one out of that group. Most of our listeners probably won't know the names, but I'm just curious which of those communities you were you were drawing from. Uh, the most? No, no, keep keep going. Don't let me... Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, so there was another uh, group of more local players um, in the Middletown area, Middletown, Connecticut. Um, one name that will certainly stand out to people who follow like SCG tournaments uh, is Ross Merriam. Um, he was part of a group with like uh, uh, Rich Meist, who won one of the Managing Opens. Um uh, Dan Gotchik, Jeff Kowalczyk, uh, and Matt McNally. Uh, so there was a big group there from the local area. And then really past that, there was just a lot of small pockets. Um, I don't maybe would you call Andy Probasco and Stefan Ellsworth a small pocket from Rhode Island? <laughs> um, there's a small pocket of three or four players that came from like southeastern Connecticut. Um, I think Hadley, that Amherst crowd, was the only crowd that was upward of five or six players that were regulars. Um, and I think and the rest were, of the pool was a lot of two or three people from here or there. I don't, I don't have your, I can't find your results from the. So I mean, what's amazing? Let me just set this up by making this point. What's amazing is that in 2003 you held five tournaments. It was like every other month you were held, holding a big tournament. And by March, and you had one in March and May in 2003, and you were hitting 60 players. Mm-hmm. So you were getting like you know two or three, a car, basically a car ride of people from all these little pockets all over New England. You're getting people from Massachusetts, from Connecticut, from Rhode Island, and presumably a number of other states. Yeah, I, I, and I I think that was part of a number of people feeling um, similar to the way I felt, that they were looking for something a little more than type 2. I mean, these are people, almost everybody that I just listed um, was somebody who started around the same time I did, 1994, yeah, yeah. 1995. By this point, they were in college. Um, you know, it was more of just a casual hobby and less of a, a competitive thing. Uh, and I think they all, again, talk about the perfect storm, came to Vintage the, uh, about the same way I did and about the same time I did. Um, and they were looking for something, and there really wasn't much in the way of Vintage events prior to my Waterberries. Um, you get past 2003, and you start to get into the, the mid-2000s, and that's when a lot of the other small tournaments popped up around. 
Right. Uh, Eric Dupuis tournaments, Beanie Exchange. Well, that's the other thing is there's like this 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 symbiotic relationship. The network that you built, you know, if you think about like a, almost a hub and spokes, and I've already alluded, you know I've alluded to this point, a hub and spokes model. Uh-huh. You're the hub, and you're building you're building on the 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 spokes that exist. But by virtue of bringing people together and generating interest, you're actually creating new nodes in the network. You're, you're creating a space in which people are excited about the format that actually generates more more people so it becomes like a positive feedback loop where you're building on what it, what has already existed and generating something and that yeah. in turn is building more nodes for your network which yeah. then makes your tournaments larger oh I definitely agree I mean there were a number of um, local events that popped up almost in a, a circle I mean you can't complete the whole circle you're, you're in Long Island sound but um, an arc around Waterbury, any direction in about a three-hour radius, uh, out to Cape Cod, up to um, you know New Hampshire, where there was um, uh, oh man, I'm drawing a blank. Dan Yarrington's store, uh, Married Games, right? Married Games, yeah. You know, again through like the Amherst area with Beanie Exchange and the stores in the mall up there, down through New York, and then um, kind of actually almost evolving over the course of the years, I think, into the New Jersey Philadelphia scene. Right, now right. between Nick Detweiler and and Nick Koss. That's right. I mean, you know, <laughs> what's interesting is not just the fact that you were at the right place at the right time. I mean, all these things had to, but how many different factors had to line up for you for this to work? Oh yeah. You had to be. You had to be like, if you'd done it five years earlier, it wouldn't work because the format wasn't at the place it was. You didn't have have the internet was not as widespread in usage. You mm-hmm. may not have had hotel access the way you had it, or you would have had you know, different kinds of organization, organizers. And then you're also in a place, a geography, New England, where you've got a lot of population density, a lot of small states. So you can you can bring people together. You know, that may not be possible in a lot of other places outside of Europe and New England. You know, yeah. It's hard to do that in, in a lot of other places. So you were able to network people together and, and get them to enjoy the competition, the regional competition. So it really, it really started pe- honing people's skills in the format too. Yeah, I, I think the the transportation was easy for people because... You know, 84 goes right through Waterbury. There's other major highways that lead in that direction. Um, you can point to all sorts of factors. Um, yeah. Just the cost of transportation. Gas, I mean, we've seen gas decrease in price in the last year, but um, let's say I had done this with the, the gas hike that we saw four or five years ago. People weren't traveling right. to tournaments just because it was $40, $50 in gas. Right, right. You know, so, um, the other thing, the other cheap thing is gas. Really I got hotel discounts for the people who stayed in the hotel. Um, so it made transportation easier cost wise as well. Yeah. The other thing that I just wanted to point uh, we can't lose sight of is and I don't know how much of an influence Steve, uh, Stephen O'Connell was who, who helped found the Manadran itself as a website. But you your tournaments were from very early on five proxy. And you were one of the first major tournaments to, you know, organizers to do that. And that's something that, that the convention model really didn't, I mean, it's not just they didn't permit, there was no way to even like consider it in that model, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that's something that you, in, in a sense, pioneered. Do you, do you think that's true? Um, oh, I, I wouldn't say that I pioneered it because um, I didn't come up with the idea of proxy tournaments. I know there were other uh, tournaments that ran proxies prior to mine. Um but I think I, I, I think I just kept it going because I, I like the idea. You know, I love that the game tests your mental intellect, and I didn't think that cost should be a prohibitive factor in being able to show that you've come up with the most creative idea to win a game of Magic. 
Um, so I, I, I like proxies on principle for that reason. Uh, so that's just something I knew that would be part of the tournament series. Uh, and then it increased to like 10. And then we did like, uh, if you wanted to go up to 15, you had to pay an extra dollar past the, the 10. Um, just as the player base grew and we, we were reaching 100 people, 150 people, 200 people, that was the way to continue to draw more people in to make it where your you know extended decks and type 1.5 decks at the time with 10 or 15 proxies you can carry those over and play some vintage ray in your experience your vast experience these days mm-hmm. do you think there's anything special that vintage players want and need out of a tournament as opposed to players from other formats hmm i think I would have answered that question differently 10 years ago, or I would answer it differently referring to the events of yore um, as opposed to today. I think today's vintage player, um, <laughs> even though some people have come and gone from the game, the type of vintage player has changed. In 2003, I mentioned they were the person who started the game in 94, and was they were now college students and wanted this wacky, crazy, fun experience that felt like a, a frat party, but with 200 people playing Magic. I think vintage players today are now your 30-somethings who, when they go to an event, they're not content with um, an unclean uh, site. They want to, you know, they want to, they want to have a somewhat classy experience. They're not going to be the people who are putting seven people in a hotel room um, and going to a tournament unshowered. Uh, I think your average vintage player is a well-kept, I don't want to say professional because they're not professional magic players, not on the pro tour in that respect, but like these are people who have careers now and um, are willing to pay for a nice hotel and, um, you know, they, they like, is, is any of what I'm saying makes sense? They, they want a quality tournament experience. I don't know about you, but Kevin always books us in the Motel 8, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin might be the exception then, I suppose. Or I'm not immune to value, but I think I get what you're <laughs> saying, Ray. Yeah, you know, so the, they would prefer um, that there's more table space so they can feel comfortable. They're, I guess a good analogy is they're looking for the first-class flight experience of magic tournaments. They're not willing to settle for, for coach anymore. They want to be able to be comfortable. They want to be relaxed. They want to um, really be able to enjoy everything about the game and the tournament experience. I can t- I can personally relate to that directly because I'm definitely in that population of people who are looking for a slightly higher quality experience across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think most of the current tournament organizers get that. Um, when I think of people like uh, Detweiler or Koss, um, I think they understand their player base very well. And they know that uh, you know they shouldn't just be, as you said, running this convention model where as long as they collect an entry fee, that's it. That's when their customer service and their attempts to make the, the customer have a, a pleasant experience stops. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about security? The Eternal Weekend has be, it's become a hot topic for that event to the point where some people consider it to be an absolute requirement for their attendance. Uh, I would think so. Yeah, I, I, I know even with security, the last two Vintage Champs, I've not brought my power. Um, opting to just play an unpowered Merfolk deck and, and go for the unpowered prize, uh, which I actually did win two years ago. Um, so even with security, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to bring, bring power. Um, for those people who are okay with it, as long as there's security, it's it's a must. I mean, I had this experience, I had this thought um, at a legacy tournament about six months ago. It was a, an, an Ely Cassis tournament. 
and I looked across the room and I see all these tables of people and they're, you know, they drop an underground C on the table and then uh, their opponent casts something and they play a force wall on the table. And, you know, in like a, a cartoon where an image changes to something else, they, they see the, the chicken and all of a sudden it looks like a, a cooked chicken coming out of the oven. <laughs> right. Warner well, Brothers all, all, these, all these cards in my mind just turned into like $100 bills. Like I saw this match where like this person just had a bunch of $100 bills in his hand that he was shuffling around and then just placed a $100 bill on the table and then he turned it sideways and he played another $100 bill. And I thought, well, someday, and maybe I shouldn't be saying this on your podcast, but someday some criminal, some guy who just wants to rob a bank is going to think it's way smarter to just walk into a magic tournament, put a gun in the air and walk off with, you know, $100,000 in decks. Hmm. Um, I hope to God that day never happens or that that never comes, but, and I hope I didn't give anybody an idea. Uh, yeah, security is an absolute must in this day and age. Absolutely. Yes. You really didn't bring your power to the, to the Minish Champs. No, were, no, I didn't. Wow. I, I mean, and you have such a passion for the format, you would think you'd want to, I mean, if it wasn't wasn't for Merfolk, would you have maybe decided to bring your power? Um, I think... You know, because two years ago uh, was the year that uh, Joel won, Joel Lynn uh, with Merfolk. And he had success with that deck prior to the point where I said, well, what does he have for power? He has an Ancestral, a Time Walk, a Sapphire, and a a Lotus. But the deck should be able to function fairly well even without those. Um, Merfolk doesn't really have the effect it did uh, at that time, so I think that's why I had a little less luck this past year. So that was a part of it, that there was a, a halfway decent deck that didn't well, I, I can personally require test the power. I, I can personally test the power of Black Lotus in the above. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it's tough to make an argument for Black Lotus um, ever not being good. <laughs> Although I think some might disagree with me. Um, really? But it, it was a combination of that and um, Steve, I know you know the story very well. Uh, the Gen Con... Uh, it must have been 10 years ago now when uh, I had to po- set a power loan out that went missing. Um, oh, yes. yes. And that was uh, a pretty life-changing experience for me. Um, you know, as the story goes, fortunately, I got it back. And at the time it was a set of power was maybe $2,000. I could only imagine what would what I would feel like if I lost a set of power these days. The good news is you got that back. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was... Uh, but I mean... And I don't know how long you have on this on this no, podcast. No, we got plenty of time. We can always okay. Um, one of the things that I took from that experience is is a mantra that I still live to to this day. I tell it to students. I tell it to coworkers. Um, people always ask me like, "Why?" I feel like I've never seen you angry. Do you ever get upset about anything? <laughs> like, you're you always have a smile on your face. And I tell them the story. I. I for people who don't know the game of magic, I don't go into too much detail. I just say it was at this this event, this uh, convention in Indianapolis, and I tell them about how you know I had this large sum of money in cards go missing, um, and I just I had to get out of there. So I get on the the um, the shuttle back to my hotel, and I'm driving down. Uh, I forget the name of the road that's the front of the convention center, and we drive past. Uh, among other things, there's just uh, I, I happen to see a, a homeless person, and I don't know why at that moment that image stuck with me, and it made me realize that no matter how crappy things seem to go in your life, if you say to yourself, "Would a homeless person trade spots with me right now?" and the answer <laughs> is yes, then you have nothing to be upset about. Because would that homeless person have said, "Okay, sure, you know what? 
I'll deal with the feeling of having a set of power uh, gone missing because I'm going to go home to my house with my food in the cupboards and my clothes on my back. And, you know, uh, in the greater scheme of things, sure, that, that would have been rough if I didn't get that set of power back. But, you know, my life would have gone on. So and I have... I, a- yeah. Okay. No, go ahead. Um, so I, I can't tell you how many times, say, in a week, maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen times when I'll get upset about something and I'll, I'll just think to myself, life's pretty good right now. Uh, if a homeless person would totally change positions with me in life at this moment so I can get through this. This is not a big deal. I stubbed my toe. It's not a big deal. Relax, Ray. Well, I have a couple other questions I want to ask you about, but since we're on this uh, philosophical um, yeah space and in part of the discussion you know i i do have to, my observation is you have sort of reached some sort of enlightenment you know <laughs> I wouldn't go that zen, zen, zen and in probably my favorite example of that is the story you tell uh one time playing your one of the decks you're famous for is stacksless stacks yep where you were i think facing some goblin uh, uh you had a <laughs> goblin that, that, raging you, goblin yeah yeah, so why don't you why don't you go ahead and tell that story? That, that was another another good Gen Con story. I feel like I have these these well, as you put it, moments of enlightenment at Gen Con. Um, <laughs> there's so many of them. Um, yeah, so it was this event where uh, it was round one, um, vintage champs, and uh, so I have my my stacks of stack deck, and I'm ready to go. And maybe like five six years ago. Oh, no, I think it was more than five or six years ago. I think it was closer to about... It might have actually been the year after my power went missing. It might have been the following year. And um, what, what year so is I, that? Give people a sense of what, what power... I'll sit down ready to battle. What's that? Just give folks a, a sense of what year that might Oh, um, so right. we're probably talking about 2005, 2006. Got to feel old. Something okay. like that. Go ahead. And uh, I sit down against this kid and... Um, and he goes first turn raging goblin attack me for one and i'm thinking oh my god this is going to be a breeze um and uh so like i proceed to play out a, a goblin welder he i think he shocked it because he didn't have lightning bolts in his vintage deck or something <laughs> and, uh, and and i have an opportunity where i could tinker um and i should just tinker for um triskelion and just make sure that his one one raging goblin isn't the death of me um and i tinker for memory jar just to kind of <laughs> you know explode um my uh, my deck on the board here and i draw like seven mana sources it's like two wastelands two mishra's workshops and three moxes and then i just continue to draw mana source after mana source and here this kid is like, you know, lightning dart you, take one, attack for one, uh, shock you, take two, attack for one. And I'm drawing blank after blank, and I ended up losing game one, and then I think, I'm pretty sure I lost the match because I got mana screwed one of the other two games. Um, and I just came away from this match so surprised, dejected, like asking myself, what the heck just happened? Um and the life lesson I got out of that, and it's it's another thing that you know I, I actually think of that story every once in a while, is you never you never let yourself assume anything. Nothing's a gimme in life. Nothing is guaranteed. Never um, assume that anybody that you meet is capable of less than you think they're capable of. Um, you know, when I go whenever I go into an interview, I uh, I don't judge any books by their cover. Um, you cannot, cannot, cannot go into uh, anything in life with this preconceived notion that's going to be easy or that uh, you got anything in the bag. And uh, 
to this day, people still rag me about that story. Uh, they'll tell me that, oh, Ray, your deck is, is so good, but can it beat Raging Goblin? <laughs> 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 and I, I remind them, it's not just Raging Goblin, it's it's Lightning Dart, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <It's> shock. <laughs> I can't beat those powerhouse comments. It's like you you stare into the abyss and the yeah. abyss stick back. <laughs> you, reach these, you reach these moments of enlightenment or, or realization that only occur because of this, like, <laughs> seeming seemingly dark moment but it's actually just and the way you you actually in, the, in your i remember reading your report the way you laid that out was just one of the most memorable things i've ever read in this format yeah i mean i'm sure the written version goes into a lot more detail and, and probably tells the story better than i'm i'm recalling it many many years later um but uh for those listeners who actually know andy Provasco or or communicate with him you'll have to ask him for a similar story about Vizardrix. um and i think what's what's interesting about that story is if i recall correctly it happened at an fnm um the week after he came in second place at the huge grand prix in chicago the huge legacy grand prix where he lost to i think it was nasif or yeah it was gabriel nasif i remember that. Nassif in the finals yeah yeah and then he goes and plays in an fnm and loses to some little scrub with Vizardrix. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, well, since you mentioned Andy and you mentioned, let's transition to the fact that you know, your tournaments were a breeding ground for some of the, you know, best players in the format. Some of the, a lot of the the vintage experts like um, yeah. like Rich Shea and Andrew Probasco and others. And mm-hmm. and I think also just as importantly, your tournaments because they were so large became a um, they became a barometer for the format, you know, that the metagame itself. And like looking at your, the only two tournament reports I can find of the five tournaments you held in, in 2003 were the the May and the March. But what's interesting is the March tournament, that was just when Groatog was taking off. And you've got, you know, to your point about like the craziness in, in the, the tournament, you've got like a lot of wacky stuff. Like someone in the top eight was playing, just one of the wackier decks was a, uh, a fireless fires deck. Fires you have a Maya deck with <laughs> oh, like a, yeah, right, that. yeah. This is a sixty-player type one tournament. It, you know, it's it's got like you know Phantom Centaur and and Ravenous Bayloth and Blastoderm. The sideboard I can see how it could have made a difference. He's got like all rods and Price of Progress and City of Solitude. But um, you know, and then you've got some other you know interesting things like the Squee the Squee um, uh, uh, Zombie Infestation deck. That oh yeah. People play. yeah. You know the uh, the the uh, Metally Mage Frexian Negator Ophidian deck control deck aggro control deck. You actually have the the blue red fish deck in the top eight there, but then but the first and second place deck is two Groatog decks, mm-hmm. you know, and then and then the rest of the top eight is the rest of the top four is an oath deck that's very well tuned, and um, yeah, actually the fires deck was also in the top four. But the point is that. <laughs> <laughs> The point is that your your deck was you know very much reflecting some of the key trends in the in the in the format. I'll just mention one other kind of cool wacky thing. The May Waterberry was won by Blue Red Ophidian by Ben Kowal. Um, yep. yep. In second place was a Stax deck showing you know the the emergence of the Workshop deck. Third place was Pox, but fourth place was the Groatog player who won the previous event. But then fifth place was a Zur's Weirding Control deck. <laughs> <laughs> With intuition, AK, and replenish, and a bunch of other things. My so, times have changed. <laughs> yeah, but it it just you know it shows you you know the rest was there was a TNT and another EBA deck, and mm-hmm. but the point is that the point is that you know you've got both the mixture of that competitive metagame dynamic as well as the cool casual and and you know it was it's just an it was an exciting time to be playing the format. Oh, absolutely. I mean. There was more diversity in vintage decks at that time than 
who knows, may, maybe ever. Um, and certainly, when you think vintage should be more streamlined because the, the better cards should be made more clear, um, to have that much diversity, it felt completely healthy. It feels like, um, well, in my mind, it feels like what Legacy is right now, where even though there are some dominant strategies in Legacy, every once in a while you get a, um, a you know, a eight rack deck or uh, a reset high tide deck or you know these random things that could just pop up and just make a high finish yeah so it was definitely it was a very exciting time uh, both and, as a player and a tournament organizer and i would be completely remiss if i did not mention um the the fact that carl winner was one of the players in your in your hub mm-hmm. and carl went on to win the type one champion the, the inaugural type one championship that year in no small part because the experience he had he'd gained sharpening his abilities in your in your uh your series that's true yeah binghamton was another that's another little pocket i forgot to mention earlier um but they were definitely um a, a pretty significant force there were four or five people from that group that came fairly regularly to my events carl being i think the the one who kind of pushed everybody else to come along um, yeah, a number of people who, well, you said it already, who had success at my events went on to have high finishes both on like the professional circuit and SCG events. Um, Rich Shea having success in like everything. Uh, so it, it was interesting to see these players when they were somewhat unknown and then growing in popularity as, as their ability for the game, their intellect for playing some good magic um, brought them to to these heights. So Ray, that brings us across a long bridge of time, and you're still organizing tournaments, much the same as you always have these days. What's the current state, and where do we go with the Manadrain Open? Organizing in the same fashion, yes. Um, at the most recent event I had, uh, looking for another fresh idea to to give people a story to tell, something to take away from the tournament. Um, I had uh, fortune cookies. <laughs> <laughs> every single person who lost a match each round got a fortune cookie and and some of them alerted them to the fact they won a prize that's what it said on their fortune and they came up to see me um but most of the time they opened up and just got some quote from a, a vintage player uh usually funny sometimes philosophical um so the the type of term i still like to run is the same the frequency has changed um i think it prior to this most recent one it was two years um going back to the last one Whereas, Steve, you mentioned 2003, I had, what, five or six events. Um, life has changed. Life has, has moved things along. Um, I actually recently just became a parent. So that's yet another thing that's uh, taking away time from running events. I don't know that I'll ever be able to give it up fully. I just I love running events too much. So to get back to your question then, Kevin, um, if we're talking timeline for a future event, and I guess you guys in your podcast are getting a bit of a spoiler, um maybe look for something before the end of the year keep your fingers crossed no promises but i'll see what i can do all right all right all right so you got the exclusive well if you want to know about ray's events the most uh, obvious place to go is the Manadrain because the all the info and the conversation is always first and foremost there is there any place else that you post your information ray um in this day and age the uh the internet's kind of a thing (laughs) (laughs) so they do a pretty good job of it uh i've really just relied on the Manadrain um a post on facebook and word of mouth to take it from there all right so well yep those are the primary spaces we are very grateful to have had you and i speaking as a player and a friend i am grateful for everything you've done for the community over all the years and i understand 
as a, a, a family person now that you can't host five events a year necessarily, but I'm, <laughs> just, so much. I'm just glad that we're getting one possibly. So thanks for everything yeah. you've done. And thanks for joining well, us. Thank uh, If you ever run into a gentleman by the name of Ron Koenig, thank him because he was the impetus for it all. And so hopefully in all these years, I've been able to give back that feeling I had to uh, as many players as possible. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been a ton of fun guys. I really appreciate you uh, having me on and, um, I, you know, I've never done a podcast before, so this was awesome. Thank you. Well, fantastic. And it could not have gone better. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for your time, Ryan. Absolutely. Our question for this episode is related to the topic, but it is if we were to do more tactics focuses like the Gitaxian Probe discussion from today, what card or cards would you like us to focus on? Thank you for listening to episode 43 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. So this is this is the magic of, of podcasts then. Is this a part that would like be edited out later or am I still just talking over something that's gonna be uh yeah. <laughs> part of the podcast?